From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, with some polls showing a weakening of black support for President Biden, two of Georgia's largest African-American church groups are combining forces to gin up support for the president's re-election campaign. We'll talk about the effort with Bishop Reginald Jackson, leader of Georgia's AME Church. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Judge Scott McAfee may not rule on the motions to dismiss Fonnie Willis from the Trump election conspiracy case until the end of the week, maybe later. But today we'll be joined by AJC columnist Nedra Rome. She says women, and black women in particular, may have a unique take on Willis's fierce pushback on these efforts. Plus, Nikki Haley picks a leadership committee for Georgia. Will she still be in the fight come March 12th? We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Joining me in Washington, my co-host, Tia Mitchell. Tia Two things I'd like to say about you, if you don't mind, to start things off. Number one, um, you had a big event this weekend. You oversaw a a big event for uh, NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists, in Washington. You're just right in the mix of all that stuff. We just were in Washington (laughs) with you for the Washington uh, Press Corps event that you had a big role in. And now, now this, what were you doing for NABJ? Our political task, thank you for asking, our NABJ political task force held the inaugural political journalism media summit. We had speakers, um, all types of the leading political journalists in the nation. Um, we talked about fact checking, AI, um, candidate profiles, backgrounding candidates, um, you know, just everything. The theme was meeting the moment and helping journalists have tools to kind of meet the moment in a consequential election year. And so we had a time. We had a great conference. We had virtual and in-person attendees, um, about 50 people in person and another um, 70 people, almost 80 people registered to attend virtually. Wow. So it was a great event. Thanks for asking. I'm, I'm proud to call myself a colleague of yours. Oh, you're doing thanks. so much. Also, 
you're heading to Atlanta. We're going to have you right here in the studio this week. Yes, I'll be around this week. And um, I'm going to start out doing some work with the AJC. And I'm going to end the week in fellowship with some of my Delta sorors. So I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Enough of that part of it. All right. Um, We've also are joined today. I'm really happy uh, to have her with us by New York Times politics reporter Maya King. Uh, Maya, you were a big part of the show that I used to do on another uh, public radio station. It's really wonderful to have you here at WABE. How have you been? Yes, I'm so glad to be back. I've been well. You know, I'm I'm just like you guys, kind of surviving through this very strange uh, presidential cycle. So glad to be back and and making some sense of it with you both today. So um, we um, were we've been expecting to be joined by Bishop Reginald Jackson, who is the head of the Georgia AME Church uh, in uh, in Georgia. And uh, the, which is which is an enormous denomination. Uh, we don't have Bishop Jackson with us yet. We hope he'll join us in the next couple of minutes. But I think we can get started in talking about um, what he was on the show to do. And Maya, you wrote the first article about the fact that the Georgia AME Church and the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, another black uh, church, both of whom have fairly large memberships, are coming together to begin voting drives, voting registration drives, information drives, uh, on behalf of the re-election campaign for President Biden. So tell us a little bit about your reporting on that. Sure. So um, the AME and CME churches, as you point out, are two very large and politically engaged Uh, predominantly Black denominations here in Georgia, but also across the country. And what these two leaders uh, in Bishop Jackson and the head of the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church found was that they had a lot of people and a lot of interest um, in becoming involved, especially ahead of this presidential election, but had not really combined forces before. And both of their efforts to galvanize voters were a little bit sporadic and um, and spread out. And so their they're combining now represents, one, an opportunity to sort of join forces and bolster a lot of the efforts that they're doing, which are very similar activities like voter registration drives, um, listening sessions with voters, engaging folks outside of the churches to get everybody in these communities uh, engaged and out to the polls. But also, which was pretty interesting uh, for me and my colleague, Nick Corsiniti, for us to hear and understand was that part of this is also a response to the large and and very well proven now uh, political influence of largely conservative, uh, mostly white evangelical churches. So this is almost an answer to that and a recognition of the fact that um, in more recent years, black churches, which were uh, and still are in many ways the center of political activity and political organizing uh, have now are are going to sort of return to that or at least bolster those efforts um, as we get closer to yet another very consequential presidential election. Uh, Tia, um, I I want to read a quote that uh, Maya got from Bishop Jackson, who I'm told is going to be joining us in a moment, uh, for her article and then have you respond to it, Tia. He said, with the importance of this election and with hearing all around the country that blacks are not motivated to vote and some blacks have decided they're not going to vote, we thought it was important to do something together 
formally. And, and that is something that we're hearing an awful lot about and seeing in some polling that, um, that black voters are not as enthusiastic about Joe Biden this time. Some of the polls show a larger percentage of black voters shifting to Donald Trump. We'll see if that really happens. But it is an issue worthy of attention right now, Tia. Yeah, and I want to point out, kind of to go back with a little context, both the AME and the CME churches as denominations, they're, they're Methodist churches, actually, but they were founded by former slaves back during the slavery era where Methodist churches were not welcoming to black people. And so both of these churches are kind of rooted in political activism, particularly with the focus on black people. And I think that's important to note because, you know, you'll hear, especially about black churches, you hear that that argument that why are churches so activists in the pulpit? You don't hear that about white churches as much, even though, as we've seen with the rise of Christian nationalism, they're just as activists from the pulpit. But again, that's something that black churches face more. And I know Bishop Jackson has just fa- just joined us. But and so I would like him to talk about that, because, again, these churches have a history. They were rooted in political activism, rooted in advocacy for black people. Bishop Jackson, thank you very much for being with us. Um, we've uh, talked a little bit about the effort, the combined effort you're uh, making with the CME Church. Um, but we're so happy that you could be with us. Tell us a little bit about what inspired uh, you to get to move in this direction. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, the AME, CMEs and others have worked together before. But with the election coming up and how important it is and the impact it will have, we thought it was important to just begin a formal uh, partnership. And so we've done that. And it's uh, going to be about uh, educating and mobilizing and organizing to get out the vote. And in fact, this is nothing new for the black church. In fact, the AME church and CME church, they were not founded so much for theological, but sociological reasons. And it was believed that uh, God made all of us out of one blood. And therefore there should be no uh, separatism, no racism. And so therefore we uh, took up that banner and have continued to hold that banner high. Bishop Jackson, one question, and then I want to get Maya and Tia back into this. Um, I mentioned just before you joined us that some polling shows that black voters are not as enthusiastic about Joe Biden this time around. Uh, we, we understand that the black vote is not monolithic, but, but at the same time, typically 90 percent of black voters vote Democratic in Georgia elections. Um, are you hearing anecdotally from uh, uh uh, the community uh, that that black people are not as enthusiastic about Biden this time? Uh, let me say this. That you're correct when you say they're not enthusiastic, but I don't think it's just a matter of Joe Biden. I do think it's a matter of them feeling, for example, that the Democrats, uh, again, have taken uh, black voters for granted. But I think there is a reason for that, and that does, in fact, lie at the feet of uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, For example, most blacks, including especially millennials, Generation Z and all, are really not aware of much of what has been accomplished, say, over the last several years. Black unemployment, about the lowest it's ever been. 
monies for HBCUs, uh, black judges, that kind of thing. But we keep hearing, and I keep hearing, well, what about police reform? Why that didn't happen? And what about uh, throwing away with school loans? How come that didn't happen? And the Democrats have done a lousy job uh, because the fact of the matter is it's not because they didn't try, but it's because they simply did not have the votes. And somehow the message needs to be that the only way you're going to get this done is to change those who are making those decisions. And in order to do that, you've got to get up, you've got to get out, and you've got to vote. For example, there is no reason why Democrats do not control the House when they lost seats they should never have lost in California and New York, two of the reddest states in the union. So the message is, if you want us to be able to do this, you've got to help us change the people who sit in those seats and vote. Uh, Maya Mentia, please. Yeah, you know, and I, I think that's exactly why this partnership is is so important also, because one thing that I've heard in talking with Democratic strategists is that in getting Black voters back out to the polls, it's going, you know, the community validators are really going to matter. Trusted voices in Black communities that are actually, you know, delivering a message, kind of like what the bishop is saying, which is, this is what we're doing in your communities. These are the policies that we pass that actually help you. This is why you should go back out to vote. And so, you know, having religious leaders, in particular church leaders um, in these communities and organizing these events, not just for their congregants, but people in, you know, outside of the church, but just in these especially more rural small towns in Georgia, I think is going to make a lot of the difference here. Bishop Jackson, I wanted to ask you, can you talk about what is this partnership going to look like through the rest of the year? Um, what what it, what specifically are you guys in partnership with the, the these two church denominations going to be doing? Thank you. Well, let me also add, beginning, uh, since we made the announcement, another one of our uh, denominations, the AME Zion Church, uh, has now requested to be a part of this partnership, for which I'm very excited, and I'm hoping some more will join on board. But we're going to be doing a host of things and beginning immediately on this whole matter of uh, educating, educating so people will, in fact, vote in their best interest. And so one of the things we have challenged local black uh, Democratic leadership, we're, we're willing to open our churches to have town hall meetings. Most of the people in our community have no idea what's happening in the state legislature, in the Congress, because they're not informed. Local uh, office holders do not communicate with the people in their community. So let's have some town hall meetings so members not only of our churches, but who live in our communities can come and talk to their elected leaders, find out what's happening, what issues are important, the consequences of decisions made regarding these matters, that's going to be the first thing. The second thing we are doing is we're going to be putting together a list not only of our congregants, but also their families and their communities. We want to make sure that we educate all of our community on the issues. There are very important issues that our people really are unaware of. So the first major thing is going to be educating our community and mobilizing them to get their attention so they will not only just vote, 
but vote in their best interest. I tell everybody I'm a Democrat with an open mind. Um, Bishop Jackson, I have to say that I, it's interesting to me to have, have read the article, Maya's article first, um, that talks about the fact that um, there needs to be a re-energizing of black voters around this 2024 election. And the reason I say that is we think about efforts like souls to the polls, Sunday churches going out on Sunday morning, black churches taking uh, busloads of people to early vote. Um, I remember my days covering presidential campaigns. Some of the most exciting and high energy events that I went to in various states with presidential candidates were in the black churches. Bill Clinton, an example of that, who energized voters every time, every Sunday that he appeared in a black church. And of course, Jesse Jackson uh, certainly knew how to do the same thing. But what I'm hearing is that that energy is just not as high anymore as we thought it was. Um, and Maya points out in her article that now it it is the white Christian churches um, which are doing a much better job, and you've all referred to it basically, than black churches in getting people excited about voting. Well, let me thank you because you are really getting me energized. I may not need to go finish my workout. Let, 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 me, <laughs> let, 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 let me say a couple of things. Number one, the black church bears a lot of the responsibility uh, for what I consider the decline in our activism. Over really the last 40 years, uh, the perspective and focus of the black church really changed to a point where it became more caught up on worship and praise. And I remind people the greatest period of growth in the history of the black church was when the black church was more socially active. For example, during the civil rights movement, you couldn't get a seat in the black church anywhere on Sunday morning because the black church was socially active. In fact, the leadership of the civil rights movement came from the black church. Over the last 40 years, the black church has abdicated much of that uh, leadership, and we have got to take it back. Let me say this also as it relates to what they call the evangelical Christians. You know, um, it, it is the biggest contradiction that I'm surprised people have not written about. Uh, some years ago, we held a rally in Washington at Lafayette Park called the Call to Conscience. And following that, we had a leadership with the meeting with the congressional leadership. As I was entering the meeting, a reporter gave me a copy of a petition signed by 10,000 evangelical ministers, which made this audacious statement. Any teaching or preaching about social justice is an injustice to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I found absolutely astounding. Because when you read the Bible, it always talks about justice. Mm -hmm. He has shown you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice or to let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. But yet, while they say you shouldn't be doing any teaching about social justice because it's not biblical, in their pulpits on Sunday morning, all they talk about are political issues and why they take the position that they take. For example, the absolutely ungodly proposition that God sent Trump to redeem the nation. Now, that takes a lot of explanation. But see, but my challenge to the black church is we've got to go back 
to where we used to be. And I guarantee you, when the people see that the black church, their pastors and leaders are engaged, they will become involved. Tia? Bishop Jackson, on that same note, and I, I want to let you answer and then Maya after that. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts when you talk to <clears throat> parishioners, particularly black men, but parishioners in general who Trump's message does appeal to them? What's your what's your response when they say, well, you know, on some of perhaps the social issues that they feel more aligned with Trump or they say, you know, the economy they felt was doing well under Trump. You saying that it's against their best interest. But we know particularly cons- people, black people who identify as conservatives, black men Sometimes Trump's message does resonate. What is your reaction when 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 that happens? Well, again, and that's why I say the issue of education is critically important. For example, not only with Trump, but in the opposite, which worked against Stacey Abrams, especially with black men, there is still this notion that uh, women should not be in positions of leadership. They just cannot see a woman being president of the United States or a woman being governor of Georgia. Fact is, and and Donald Trump, to his credit, has mastered this, which I really just believe is absolutely, totally erroneous. People like strong leadership. Trump portrays himself as being a strong leader. But if I can be so arrogant enough to say, I just believe Donald Trump is a punk. Because put him to the test and let's really see how strong he is. And too many black men and some other blacks have been fooled by this idea that he is a strong leader. So let's look at his administration when he was president. Unemployment under um, for blacks under Biden is better than it was under Trump. If you look at it, HBCUs, why they did all right under Trump, they're doing much better under Biden, and let's not even go to judges. Again, it's a matter that the Democrats have done an absolutely horrible job. They need to go back to Communications 100 because their messaging is absolutely lousy. Maya? And I was in South Carolina for the Democratic primary a few weeks ago, and it was sort of the first test of Democrats' message to Black voters and countering You know, this general sense of malaise, I think, that a lot of black voters, a lot of voters, period, are feeling towards Democrats and towards politics writ large. And one thing that I wanted to raise, and I'm curious, uh, Bishop Jackson, that if you if you've thought about this is the generational gap that exists among black voters, especially when you're talking about faith spaces. You know, the one thing I think that powered a lot of the uh, political influence of the black church in the 60s or during the civil rights movement at its height was this um, large group of of young people who were also in the streets and also willing to look at the church as the center of their community. That's not really the case now, um, but it's going to take the youth vote to really, uh, I think, pull Democrats out of this rut that they're in. You know, is that an added challenge that you've considered as a faith leader um, developing a message for, for younger folks and getting them back out to vote and giving them something to feel like they have to vote for or they could vote for? Well, you know, it's not only a, a message uh, that's uh, written, but it's something that they need to see. I will never forget a few years ago when Michael Brown was killed, uh, 
I was struck when some of us went there to Ferguson and the young blacks asked, where have you been? Why are you just showing up now? You see, again, going back to the civil rights movement, the greatest work of the black church was not in that sanctuary on Sunday morning. It was when they were out in the streets. It's when they were speaking out. In fact, that's really when marching was stronger than it's ever been. I think as our congregations got older, we became more lackadaisical, for lack of a better word, but our young folk, our millennials, they need to see the passion and the fervor and the engagement. And we've also got to develop younger leadership because some of us are getting older, and I just felt the pain saying that, are getting older, and we've got to develop leaders who would carry the effort forward. Tia, jump back in. So you say developing leaders. I just... You open the can of worms, Bishop Jackson. Who are you looking at as far as the leaders of tomorrow, um, particularly in the black community in Georgia or even beyond? Well, you know, um, one of the things since I've been the bishop, for example, the Amy Church in Georgia, I have really tried to promote and develop uh, young people coming through. So I think, for example, among the clergy, we have an outstanding group of uh, young ministers and, in fact, young lay people who are actively engaged and prepared to get involved. I'm so proud because the AMEs have really become uh, very strong among faith groups and black faith groups in Georgia. And so I'm calling upon my colleagues and all the other denominations that we've got to develop leadership. And I don't want to call some names and make them targets or to put targets on their back. But uh, there are some good, strong young leaders who've been extremely helpful to me. Um, and I, I don't want to take credit on things. You know, we have some people who have been extremely helpful to make my task a little easier. And I'm hoping uh, with Bishop Brown, with the CME Church and others, that we will develop that so that people have leaders they can look up to. Bishop Jackson, we are uh, out of time uh, for this segment of the show. I'm really delighted, uh, and I know Tia and Maya were glad to talk to you as well. You have been um, a social activist in this community. Um, I think of you uh, often when I see um, uh, um, that there are protests, that there are concerns, social active concerns, social, social activist concerns that the black community particularly is involved with. You are always out there um, moving things forward. So thank you so much for being with us today. And we should say your partner in this at the CME Church is uh, Reverend Thomas uh, Brown. You mentioned him a minute ago. And also, we just saw a news release this morning that the Poor People's Campaign, which has launched a 30-state effort to try to encourage black uh, voters to get engaged in the upcoming election, will be holding a Georgia event tomorrow. So there does seem to be some momentum moving in the right direction. So thank you, Bishop Jackson, for being with us today. We got to get to our first break in Politically Georgia. Bye-bye. When we come back, we're going to be talking to AJC columnist Ned Rarone about how she saw the testimony of Fannie Willis last week. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, 
an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We've got a great offer for Politically Georgia listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week for life. As long as you keep your subscription, you'll get our sports and politics coverage, breaking news, in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our apps, exclusive films, and events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. It's a great deal for a greater Atlanta. And by the way, this is for new subscribers only. Tia Mitchell, my co-host today, is with us from Washington, but she's heading to Atlanta. and We'll have her in the studio this week, I'm glad to say. Maya King, politics reporter for the New York Times, is here as well. And now we're really pleased to be joined uh, Tia, by another AJC colleague, Nedra Roan. Nedra, thank you so much for uh, being with us on Politically Georgia today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, and, and I think you know that one of the reasons we wanted to have you here, the main reason, is a column that you wrote over the weekend in which you talked about how women, and especially black women, may have seen Fonnie Willis's rather explosive confrontations with defense attorneys last week differently um, than the rest of the community may have seen it. And I really want to get into that with you, but I'm going to turn it over to Tia Mitchell um, because I'm the white guy on the show today and we have three black women and I want to hear what you all have to say about this. Tia? So I'll take it away. And but the first thing I want to do before we get into the <laughs> politics of everything is I remember on Thursday when we were when watching the hearing and when Fonnie Willis was talking about her dad told her to keep cash and that it wasn't unusual for her to have a lot of cash around. And for me, not that it was necessarily my own lived experience, but it was not foreign to me, that concept. And so I remember telling my coworkers said, hey, guys, we might need to write about this because this is very much a black thing that is rooted in distrust of banks. And also, if you're an older black person, you might have lived through the Great Depression. Um, and so there might even be white people who, for that reason, older white people keep a lot of cash as well. I would imagine for those same reasons. But again, for black people it also goes with the systemic ra- racism in banking. But Nedra, you hit on that. Maya, I want to start with you. Then we can go to Nedra. You know, just that cultural component of keeping a lot of cash around and how for black people that might not have read as crazy or surprising uh, because it, it is part of the culture. No, not at all. And exactly. I think most of us, most black Americans have a, a grandparent or an auntie or an uncle who keeps a lot of cash. This actually spurred a conversation between me and some other black reporters about whether we still keep cash. And I think it speaks to um, more broadly in this case, just all that it has unearthed outside of, you know, Fonnie Willis's private and dating life. We've also got a very interesting window into black life 
and some of the, I wonder if we'll get into it later, the the sort of offhanded comments that that Fonnie Willis made, you know, a man is not a, a man is a companion. A man is not a plan. Um, you know, that kind of remind me of some, some old wives tales that I've heard, heard in the community too. And the relationship that she has with her father and the advice that he was giving, it kind of felt like at some points we were just getting a look into a lot of black households, you know, her telling the woman who was asking her questions, I think it was something along the lines of, you know, don't be cute. Don't get cute. You know, those are things that that black mothers often say to to their daughters too. So um, yes, to answer your question, Tia, absolutely. Keeping a lot of cash is certainly a very black American cultural touch point, but also I think it was one of many that we saw in this case last week. Jump in, Nedra. Yeah, no, I would agree with that as well. I mean, I think what I was responding to and what a lot of other people were responding to, I was on three different chats during this whole thing. And it was composed of people who are of (laughs) ages, races, and genders. But we all were kind of feeling the same sort of emotional response to what was happening. I think with the Black people on it, it was very much seeing these undercurrents of race, class, and gender playing out in the courtroom and feeling very... um, you know, very uncomfortable with the way it was happening, Um, specifically with the money issue. You know, as I wrote in my column, when my father passed away in, in 2020, my sister and I were going around and cleaning out some of the things. And in the closet, we found piles. And I, I'm not going to say the amount because it's ridiculous, but it was thousands of dollars that he had in a jacket pocket in the back of his closet. And that was what he felt was a safe place to have it. Now, this is, you know, not to say that my parents didn't have bank accounts and use banks and use credit cards. They did, but they still had this practice of holding on to massive amounts of money in the house. And again, I won't say that, that, you know, DA Willis has this in her home. I don't know what she has in her home, you know, but this is a practice that we know about. This is something we are all familiar with. It was not in, you know, I felt that the response to that was just so incredulous. Like, how could this be? How could you have this here? And to me, that was just a lack of cultural competence and people just not understanding um, that that there are things that are different than the way you do them. So, Nedra, you you mentioned that, you know, we still we we're talking about cultural, but we we're not saying we know for sure. What is going on in Fonnie Willis's household? We're not saying whether we know for sure her testimony was truthful or not. That is for a judge to decide. Um, But you talked in your column, Nedra, about feeling conflicted because on one hand, you felt that Fonnie Willis was being talked down to and that, you know, this whole matter was to sully her reputation, not so much about, you know, legal standards. But you also, on the other hand, said, I'm disappointing in her, disappointed in her for, you know, making these decisions that could, you know, jeopardize her career, making this mistake in mixing business with pleasure is how you put it. But you also said, as many of us do. So it's like very relatable. Can you talk about just all the range of emotions you felt watching this unfold? I can. I mean, it felt like a roller coaster, honestly. I just, I felt like I was up and down. I felt like, even before she entered the courtroom, I was having these feelings. So, you know, it wasn't just about her and her presence. And I felt like, um, you know, a lot of readers have tried to reduce it to that because you're a Black woman, naturally, you're going to have these feelings um, about seeing a Black woman. And it was, you know, before she even came in, I was already sitting there um, feeling very 
distressed in a way about the way that this was playing out. Um, some of the questioning that we saw happening when, um, you know, attorney Ashley Merchant was questioning um, Nathan Wade and she was cutting him off, you know, repeatedly to the point where the judge had to intervene and say, hey, let him finish a sentence. And, you know, I understand courtroom theatrics. I was not born yesterday. Right. I know that part of it is theater. Um but to me, again, I felt like there was such a level, a heightened level of disrespect happening from the very moment that this started. And I think that a lot of that goes to the root of um, of what this case is even all about. I mean, as I said in my column, just thinking about the how preposterous it is to think that this woman who has accomplished all of these many things in her life would just toss it all away for some, you know, cheap dinners, you know, and I said cheap because the restaurant that was mentioned was a $1 sign restaurant in Hapeville that, um, that they went to. Uh, cheap restaurants and, and trips, you know, to, to Aruba and Belize is just, it's, it's beyond thinking to me. Um, but again, at the same time, I was also, like you said, I was thinking to myself initially, how did she let this happen? She should have known better. She's been working on this case for years. She knows how, um, you know, the former president and, you know, his co-defendants, they operate. She knows how they play. Why wasn't she more prepared for something like this? Um, and I think that I just needed to make space for these very conflicting feelings because I felt like everyone was feeling them. You know, I think when we started hearing about these allegations, everyone kind of stood back and there was a lot of waiting, you know, but I think, I think seeing the hearing and seeing how it unfolded, um, watching a lot of the, um, the fishing that I think was happening there um, really sort of changed it for a lot of people. And they were like, well, wait a second, what are we really doing here? Maya, one of the things I noticed was even then the reaction to the case, both in real time and after the hearing, the her testimony, that reaction, there did seem to be another racial divide where you had, you know, black women or black people in general were much more likely to feel like Fani did a good job and she made the case and, and embarrassed um, those attorneys for the Trump defendants. Whereas I saw people it was more likely for white people to feel that she looked bad and was combative and, and that it wasn't a great look and, and that it was harmful to the case. So even then, and I'm not saying it was universal. I even saw some black female lawyers saying, you know, they didn't feel like Fonnie Willis did a great job on the stand. Maybe it did herself a disservice. So, but can you talk about the reaction to her testimony and how that has ranged among various types of voters. Sure. I mean, I think the fact that she had to testify in the first place, that she did testify in the first place, already put a lot of people on defense. So like you said, a lot of Black women, Black professional women were already really disappointed in the fact that she even had to kind of go into detail about her her personal life and that it really shouldn't even matter. Um, I made a lot of calls to folks sort of in political circles. And a lot of people here in Georgia were just really frustrated because they were like, this state was already won by Democrats on such a thin margin. And here we have something of a, of a sideshow that doesn't have anything to do with the election. Um, well, it has everything to do with the 2020 election, but doesn't have much to do with the upcut with the voting that will happen in November. 
that has sort of occupied the minds of so many voters. And I think that's one big thing here is that you have this, um, you know, this very deeply personal relationship that's clouding the details of one of the biggest political cases of of our lives and or, or of really the history of the country, some might say. Um, and now it's at the center of it, this relationship between this Black woman and a Black man who are at the head of that case. And I think that just has has really um, muddied the waters for a number of people and scared a lot of political strategists because they're now saying, I have to have these conversations about D.A. Willis's private life when what I really want to do is get you back to the polls to vote for Joe Biden in November. Uh, Charles Blow, the New York Times, Black New York Times columnist who makes his home here, uh, wrote a pretty tough piece after Fonnie Willis's testimony in which he says she he believes, he believes she did uh, great harm to the Democrats who are trying to win Georgia in 2024. I don't, I mean, we'll see how that plays out, but it was interesting that that um, he had that observation. Nedra, I want to talk about just a couple quick things in terms of this. Number one, um, while you do talk about some of the customs that relate specifically to um, African-Americans, like holding on to large amounts of cash. You also talk just in general about how women, uh, how she was treated as a woman. And one of the moments that you point out that I found to be uh, a really strong moment, or twice actually, when Fonnie Willis said to defense lawyers, stop yelling at me. And she said it relatively politely, but firmly. And I was very impressed. I thought that was a very strong uh, moment, two moments for her. Um, And the other moment was her father's testimony. He was a Black Panther in his youth, so he was an activist, a radical activist. But he's gone on to have a career as an attorney, an accomplished attorney. And he talked about the cash issue, issue in his testimony by talking about when he was living in Cambridge, at Har- going to Harvard, um, going to a restaurant where they wouldn't accept his credit cards. First, he gave him an American Express card. Then, I think, a Visa card. And the, the uh, restaurant wouldn't accept him. So he had to have cash. Those moments really humanized for me a lot of what happened in this hearing. Nedra? Yeah. I mean, I think with the, the shouting thing, what stood out to me again was... The, you know, I think throughout time, men have often used their voices to dominate women. And um, that is what was a touch point for me when that happened. And I was like, there are many times in my life where I wish I had said, hey, don't talk to me that way. And so I was very happy when she did that, you know. Um, And again, I think that people could read it as her being this, you know, belligerent, you know, that was a word that one of the readers emailed to me, um, witness, but I felt like this is a person who is just standing up for herself and saying, no, you're not going to speak to me in this disrespectful tone and making it clear that we're going to exercise a certain level of decorum in our interpersonal exchange. So I know we're kind of running out of time on the segment, um, but I wanted to bring it back to, to me, when I was watching the Fonnie Willis testimony, one of the big takeaways or one of to me the lines that stuck with me was when she said as much as they want to put me on trial I am not the one on trial and I thought that was you know that was a powerful impression statement for her to make because it did kind of say oh you're right like this isn't the Fonnie Willis trial this is kind of a side issue to the main thing, which is former President Trump and his supporters and whether they tried to overturn an election. Um, 
What did you think about that statement, Maya? I think it was probably the most powerful statement that she could have made because she did bring it back to, you know, the reason why she even started this case in the first place. And I think that's really been lost in the minds of a lot of voters. Again, like this is a very dramatic and very personal case, and it has really distracted from the entire reason, you know, why we're in the courtroom in the first place and why former President Trump is on trial. And so um, I did hear from a number of strategists who said, yeah, well, that 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 is a good point, which is this is why we're here. They're the ones on trial. You have put me on trial and kind of putting it back into context. Yeah, I felt like her, her saying that was such a summation of, you know, everything that was really happening. And I think she articulated that very well. And I I also feel like that was the line that you saw quoted just about everywhere because everyone understood just how important it was that she said that. We do have to pause for our final break of the show today. But Nedra Roan, it was so good to have you on the show today. We, I always look forward to reading your columns uh, on the Sunday uh, paper. And so it was a pleasure to have you with us today. Maya King, can you stay with us? We're going to talk, talk about Nikki Haley. Want to stay with us uh, for the final sure. segment? All right. Well, Why then not? Let's I'll do stick this. Maya King, Tia Mitchell will be back. Nikki Haley. Uh, picked a leadership committee in Georgia this week, suggesting she's going to be around through the March 12th primary. We'll talk about that and the fact the South Carolina primary is coming up Saturday. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC Politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. We're back with Tia Mitchell, my co-host on the show today, and Maya King of the New York Times. A couple of quick notes. Uh, first, uh, early voting started today in Georgia. I understand that there's not a lot of competitiveness on either the Republican or the Democratic side of the race. But um, this is, of course, for president. We're not talking about uh, congressional races. That doesn't come until May. But, um, you know, I've said it before on this show. I'll say it again from my point of view. When people talk about, you know, voting being uh, a, a privilege, I always say, nope. Nope, it's a responsibility. So I hope you do get a chance to get out in, and vote, uh, maybe early, but if not, on March 12th. And one other quick note, Jimmy Carter, this weekend uh, was celebrated, I think that's a fair word to use, an entire year of home hospice. He has shown just extraordinary strength in hanging on, and we're so happy that that's the case. Okay. Uh, Tia Mitchell, uh, Saturday, Republicans go to the polls in South Carolina. We know that Donald Trump is leading Nikki Haley in every single poll by a very wide margin, but she insists that she is not getting out of the race 
And to make a point of it, she, uh, this past weekend, uh, announced a slate of leaders who are backing her campaign here in Georgia, Rusty Paul, mayor of Sandy Springs, but a former chairman of the Georgia Republican Party and what you would call a mainstream Republican, Eric Tannenblatt, a frequent uh, friend on uh, Politically uh, Georgia, who's her co-chair of, the na- of her national financial campaign, and uh, Representative Scott Hilton and Deborah Silcox, plus many more. Now, that our primary doesn't come till after Super Tuesday when 16 states are voting. So, Tia, the question is, although she's got the money, will she still be hanging in for our primary? I mean, Nikki Haley has said she's going to stay in through Super Tuesday. Um, the question is, would she stay in even a week after that? Um, she, We have to be clear, she has not won a primary yet. And there's right now no good signs that she would win any primaries moving forward. And it is possible that after Super Tuesday, the math won't even be working in her favor anymore. But, you know, we'll see what will happen. A lot of people say there's no incentive for her to drop out at this point. She can remain the alternative to Trump just indefinitely and and hope that she's hanging around should other um, circumstances cause him to have to bow out or cause him to make the decision to bow out. Um, Maya, do you think my question for you, Maya, is do you think that there's any way Nikki Haley at this point will be pressured or what could possibly be the point that causes Nikki Haley to bow out? I think if she's really decisively defeated, like by more than 40 points, which I believe is the threshold that her campaign and other pollsters have said uh, in South Carolina, it'll become pretty clear in the minds of her uh, her supporters, um, and also I think many close to her, that if you cannot win in your home state, the state that you once governed, that you once served as a state representative and senator, then, you know, it might be time to consider an alternative. <laughs> it might be time to bow out, to get out of the race, uh, to put it more bluntly. And, you know, the one thing that I've heard Haley say on the trail that I think is is part of what's keeping her campaign going is, look, Yes, Trump won overwhelmingly in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Um, However, in upwards of 30 or 40 percent of Republican primary voters still did, you know, split their votes among other alternative candidates. So she, as long as there is a real desire for an alternative to the Trump Biden rematch, which there is in polling. And I'm sure we've all spoken to voters who say they're not excited about the prospect of this rematch. Haley sees herself as the avatar of that alternative, as the the shining symbol of of what could be. Um, Now, again, I don't know how she can continue making that case after losing in her home state, depending on the margin of of loss. But um, I think that she feels that her position as an alternative is what makes her uh, makes the case for her candidacy so strong. Well, you know, of course, one of the things that also has allowed Nikki Haley to keep going is that she continues to raise a great deal of money. Um, And as long as the money holds out and keeps coming in, it strikes me that she will want to continue. Compared to Ron DeSantis, DeSantis, of course, dropped out as soon as Iowa was over, 
um, he had put all his uh, eggs in that basket. So that was one reason he dropped out. He couldn't win the state. But his money was also uh, running out, Maya. So I suppose as long as Nikki Haley's campaign is fueled by cash, she will stay in. But the question becomes, Maya, if in fact she gets beaten by 30, 40 plus points in South Carolina, will the contributions now dry up? It's kind of a zombie campaign already in some ways and that it's still going, but it's not really, you know, you don't really see the direction and it already feels like it's there's no end in sight. But, you know, you have to remember, too, that what's behind all of that money are a lot of donors who are saying, you know, to her and to her closest advisors, keep going. We need you in this race. We need a Trump alternative. And when you say that and you back it up with seven figure investments in the campaign, you know, that does go quite a long way. And I'll also add one more point, which is that South Carolina is a very inexpensive market. Mm. And so it's easy to kind of drain, you know, to to really put a lot of money out there um, and have it go very far in terms of advertising and staffing. Tia? I just want to say back to her Georgia leadership campaign. I know it was a lot of names on the list to show that strength in Georgia, but uh, once you get past the first four names or so, wasn't a lot of people who were well-known in political circles. It was a lot of business folks, no former members of Congress, for example, let alone current members of Congress. It, we're about out of time. The only thing I'll say about that, T, is you are absolutely right. She doesn't have the elected officials on her side for the most part. But some of the names on that list are people who have a lot of money mm-hmm. that they're willing to contribute to campaigns, private uh, business people, mm-hmm. and some of them were Trump supporters and donors back in uh, certainly 2016. I, I have to be careful about 2020, but they are now, some of them, with Nikki Haley, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting. All right, we're completely out of time uh, for today's Politically Georgia. My King, as I said when we introduced you, so good to see you again and have you back on our show. Thank you. We'll continue to look forward to reading your pieces in the New York Times. And Tia, get to Georgia. We want to get you here as fast as possible to see you with us in the studio. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Remember, you can hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. And as you know, you can follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. 
In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.